Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing good. How about you, my friend? Good. It's day uh, seven trillion in isolation. We're doing okay. We're still doing the Playground podcast, and we're pleased to announce our main sponsor, Kid Stuff Public Relations, and we're going to be telling you more about them as we go along. But in the meantime, we are very happy to welcome to the Playground podcast Mr. Rob Angel, who you may know as the creator of Pictionary, one of the most successful games of the 20th century, and now the author of a new book about that experience called Game Changer. Rob, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, and Richard, for having me. It's a pleasure having you on. It's a pretty important product, not just in terms of um, the industry, in terms of producing revenue, but really, I think it's a cultural totem. And we were telling Rob just before we started recording that both Richard and I have connections to the game. I was working at Pisano and Company, and in fact, was hired away from a miserable job I was working at where I was forced to lie to the clients uh, about about stuff and hired on the spot on a Saturday afternoon and started on Monday morning working on Pictionary. And Richard, you were at Western Publishing. I was at Western Publishing Company, unfortunately, and much to our uh, anger, we were not allowed to sell the game. Uh, yeah. But Western Publishing was producing the game. And the whole company was pretty jacked up about it because it was a huge success. Yeah, Richard, you guys, the Western did our manufacturing for a very long time. I mean, they were doing millions and millions of games every year. So without that cog, you know, it would have all come to a halt. And uh, yeah. Interesting piece of background on that. Um, I'm not sure if you would be aware of this, that prior to your game, we had another game called Out of Context. Sure. That was the correct creation of uh, Mr. Hirsch. Brian Hirsch, yep. Brian, Brian Hirsch, Hirsch was a, a notable game inventor. Uh, he invented, what, Taboo, a Boggle, I think? Not out of Boggle. Context, uh, out of Context was his other big game around the time of Pictionary. Uh, Alfred. Yeah. So, too, yeah. So uh, we had never at, at Western Publishing Company had a TV advertised game. And this game, I don't know what happened. But the industry went nuts in ordering this product from us. And I had um, customers who would threaten me if I didn't uh, get them 25,000 games or 50,000 games. I mean, it was it was crazy. And we as a sales organization did not know how to manage the demand. And the game cratered at retail. And everybody out there had like, Tons and tons of product, but they bought it. Uh, so that was a tremendous learning piece for Western uh, Publishing Company when they did Pictionary. I got to tell you, that story resonates with me because Pictionary had just come out, it was coming out, and exactly as you say, now I know why, everybody's going crazy for that game for Out of Context. And we didn't know if it was going to sell or not, but we knew they were getting a ton of orders and it scared the the life out of me that here I've got this great game, but this guy's selling all these games into retail. Uh, and now I know why. And yeah, it didn't do as well as everybody had hoped, but it was, it was a phenomenon. I totally no, it, remember it that situation. It, it wasn't just that it didn't do as well. It just didn't move. Right. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to give you that piece uh, uh, that that was the kind of the preface, the prologue 
to the launch of a uh, very successful launch of Pictionary, which Western Publishing managed very well. And the Games Gang, who was your sales arm, managed yep. to sell very, very well. You guys made the engine go. And then Christopher, uh, we did all the promotion and PR ourselves, you know, Terry Gary and myself out of my apartment for the first 18 months until we licensed. And then Pisano and company took us nationwide and Christopher was on that team. And you know how you remember, I won't call them the little things, but those beginning moments. I mean, I've sold millions and millions of games, but I remember those little moments with Chris and, and the things that we used to do and the things they used to do, like we went to uh, Central Park and played a game there. Who, who would have thought that I was going to go to Central Park? And there's Christopher running around doing that. Uh, <laughs> I remember I remember being in a car with him and, and Amy Jacobs, and we had developed these little things called pick packs because for us in Pictionary, everything was about sampling. We had to get the pencil in people's hands. That's, we knew that was going to make or break us. But people couldn't afford back then or didn't want to afford $30 so we developed these little mini games, pad of paper, a couple of cards, pencil, and the rules. And we passed out thousands and thousands. I remember being in a car with Christopher and Amy Jacobs, and we go through a toll booth, and instead of throwing in money, she threw a pick pack into the machine. And, <laughs> and we would stop people. May, Amy and I were driving through Boston. I don't know why we were in Boston, Rob, but we were doing it. And I would honk the horn at stoplights, and that people would roll down the window, and Amy would throw games at them. Uh, we'd get on planes with shopping bags full of games, uh, the pick packs, and hand them to everybody on the plane. You can't do that I, anymore. You can't do that anymore. I mean, I was at a stoplight in Seattle, and I had a bunch of pick packs with me, and the guy next to me had a convertible, and we're at the red light, <laughs> and I take a pick pack and wing it at him like a frisbee. Well, they're pretty heavy, and hits him right upside the head. It's supposed to land in his car. He jumps out of his car, and is going to come over and punch me out. But fortunately, it was a green light, and I managed to take off. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was cool. I had a similar experience leaving the convention center in Shanghai, and there were these gentlemen standing along the streets, and suddenly a deck of cards exploded against my chest in the back seat of a taxi, thrown by one of these guys. It was not in a box. Cards went everywhere. And then I thought I was shot, but I wasn't. And it turned out they were all pictures of, well, let's just say compromised women. Uh, <laughs> so that being on the, on the receiving end, it was a rather startling experience, but I digress. <laughs> so, so Rob, you've just written a book about this whole experience. Uh, it's called Game Changer. It's out June one. Is that correct? It is. That's the big launch date. Thirty. It's on the thirty-fifth anniversary of when I launched uh, at the restaurant where I was still waiting tables. The day. It's thirty-five years ago to the day. That's wonderful. wow. Wow. The book is quite an adventure. It really is quite an adventure of, of what you went through and how you got from, from one place to another. And I think it's a really great sort of guideline to entrepreneurs because what you touched off was this frenzy of people trying to develop games. Yeah. Our, our success um, was instrumental in basically picking up the mantle from Trivial Pursuit. We were the next uh, the next one. So Petrovic, who clearly was the was the granddaddy. But, you know, Brian Hirsch notwithstanding, there still wasn't a lot of people doing games. And when Pictionary came out, 
I think we showed the public that, wait a minute, if this guy, this waiter can do it, I don't have to be an executive. I don't have to be in the industry. I can do it as well. And so I think my story is what resonated with people and just let them know that, hey, anybody can do it. This guy, he did it. So can I. And I think that was how the frenzy got started. What I find interesting about the game is that you created a new play pattern. You didn't just create a new game. I think play patterns are highly significant. And it was a non-intuitive play pattern because no one had done anything, to my knowledge, using pictures. Uh, I mean, the closest thing would have been charades, but that was just acting out. So what you did uh, was really very groundbreaking in, in terms of what a board game could be. I, I appreciate that. Um, I didn't realize it, quite honestly, at the time. But, of course, we're looking back that you know I didn't invent straight on papers we call it you know hieroglyphics people have been drawing forever so i was just figuring out a way how to package the fun that i was having with my roommates and the play pattern became instead of looking at the board you looked elsewhere there was a couple of aspects to it you looked at the pad you looked at each other you're in on the joke so so when you're playing and your drawing is terrible, which most of us are, let's be honest, right? It is, it just is. But, and people are laughing at you, but guess what? You're laughing at yourself. So the play pattern and the play was part of failure. All of a sudden, failing is okay. All of a sudden, failing isn't that bad because everybody's failing. And so you're in on the joke, as I call it. And and this collaboration aspect of it, uh, you know, and usually most games are, and most games, you know, not not so much anymore because of the panic games and whatnot. But back then, it was novel to have teams. You had to play with teams. So it was a collaboration. And I think that also hit a big nerve with people. And I think that's one of the, the really important things about it. Rob, you talk about failing, but you might be failing at drawing, but what you're successfully doing is communicating to your teammates. So it doesn't really matter how rotten your drawing is. Uh, and that was something we always found when we were playing it with people in stores, on airplanes, wherever we were playing, was once they got over the fact that they didn't have to draw well, they had to communicate well, it really took a lot of the, the fear out of it. Absolutely. I, we, we figured that out about three months in that I used to do demonstrations at the bottom of the escalator at Nordstrom, one of my big sales pitches to stores was I would literally stand at a table with a Pictionary game splayed open in a corner of the building. I at the bottom of an escalator at Nordstrom. I was in the basement of one toy store. But my job was to get people to play the game and buy the game. So I was personally going to sell every one of those first thousand games that I did by hand. And when I was standing at the bottom of the escalator, now all of a sudden we've got this, this clientele at Nordstrom and I couldn't really get them to to play. I'd throw the pencil in their hand and and it wasn't working. I'm going, what the heck? I'm, this is a great game. Once I get the pencil in their hand, they'll, they'll buy it. So Terry, Gary and I talked about it. So we realized Pictionary is not a drawing game. For most people, it's a guessing game, right? That takes the pressure off. I can do that, right? As you just said, Christopher, it's the, it's the, communication. So instead, when they would come down the escalator, instead of me throwing a pencil in their hand, I throw up a picture. What's this? Oh, I think that's a cat. I go wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They could have gotten it right. And I go wrong. Try again. And they look at me startled. Uh, uh, 
a Siamese cat? No, try again. So eventually I would soften up and I'd be nice to them. And eventually they'd just come over and they go, oh, I got it. Well, thank you. And I'd praise them for guessing the word right. And then I'd subtly just put the pencil in their hand. That was the transformation. That was the big takeaway uh, to convert them from this, what the heck are you doing to me to, oh, I like this. I'm going to buy the game. Chris and I have talked about before that when these kind of major fads begin, there's really no way to explain it. It's just kind of the right product at the right time and it's a little bit of uh, act of God. Now, 35 years later, do you have a sense of why it became so popular? I think it's the shared memory. It's people remember going to the Rolling Stones concert together because the music and the camaraderie and the people and the noise. And they remember these things. All your senses are alive. So you remember that when you're playing Pictionary. It's the same thing. You're drawing, you're looking, you're loud. You're, you're, just, you're just in this moment with a bunch of other people. You're not doing it on your own. So it has this shared the shared sense of, of, of belonging on it, uh, actually. And so you remember playing and you remember your favorite words and everybody's got a favorite Pictionary story. They do. And it's because it was a happening. It was an excitement. It was, it was a reason to get together. It could have been a concert. It could have been Pictionary. It could have been anything. But you remember these moments that you're sharing with other human beings and, and I think that's the longevity of it. I think that's why it still resonates. Mattel is still selling the heck out of it because people are still making new memories all the time. Uh, Chris, you know, something we really didn't get into yet uh, is, can, can you tell us the genesis? What, how did you happen to think this up? It, you know, hindsight is 2020. Uh, I've kind of looked at it from a different view. So when I was uh, 18 years old, I'd worked for my father for five years and I, I looked at him and I said, I want to be him. He's an executive. He's a businessman. He's, he runs this, this large company. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to be in my life. So I had my life all planned out for me. And then at 18 years old, he gets fired. I'm going, wait a minute. Everything I, I knew, everything I thought I was going to be is now gone. Uh, if he can be at the whim of somebody to fire him, then I'm never going to be in that position. I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to create something, whether it's a business or product. So that was the backdrop. That was my mindset. So when I started, kept going through college, I started taking entrepreneurial classes. I started expanding my own uh, future. I didn't know what it looked like, but I knew what it wasn't going to be, and that was going to be working for somebody else. So I, I was open to pretty much any experience and just was going to see where, where it took me. So one day... After I graduated college, I'm still waiting tables. And I put myself through school doing it. And one of my roommates says, hey, you know, do, do you want to play this game? We played at college. We just called it charades on paper. Uh, sure. So the opportunity really was just to have fun. I didn't I didn't see an opportunity to, have to play a game, make a game or create a picture. It was like, OK, I'm going to have fun. But my mindset was always just be open. So as I'm playing this game late into the night, and then the next night and the next night I go, you know, I think this is going to make a good board game. And so from that is where it's a longer process. But that was the genesis. That was, oh, OK, I, I think there's an opportunity here for me to pursue. And in your book, you talk about how you called up the friends that you were playing with and you said to them, hey, I want to develop this as a board game. Do you want to be involved? And they said, nah, go ahead. <laughs> 
<laughs> have they ever come back to you and said, man, that was the dumbest thing I ever did? Well, you know, they're still friends, so I don't think I would ever quite, you know, verbalize it like that. But since you did, uh, no, we're all, <laughs> no, we're all, we're all still friends. And and Sean, who's mentioned in the book, he was a great help in the beginning because we were, we were physically close and roommates. Uh, but no, it, it was something that was in the public domain, if you will. Anybody could have done anything with it. Right. And I was one that got off my butt. I mean, there's tons of ideas. Uh, but until you get off your, your rear and do something with it, it doesn't matter. They were supportive. They didn't, you know, they weren't like, yes, Rob, you can do this. It was okay, whatever. Right. How, did, how did you get from the idea to actually a, a, a box in your hands with the game inside? Oh, there's a, there was a few steps. Uh, and that's what the book is about. That's the book. That's the crux, that's the crux of the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. So yeah. read the book to find out. Read the book. Yeah, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, pun intended, I guess. Right. When I decided to work on the game, I knew instinctively that I had to figure out a way to get words into a game because people aren't going to go through the dictionary like we did. They're not going to just come up with words off the top of their head. Couldn't figure it out until one day, about two years later, my mom sends me Trivial Pursuit. I'm still, I'm 24 years old, still waiting tables. And I open it up and look at this card. And the question was, what animal has clear fur and translucent skin? Something to that effect. And I turn it over and I see the word polar bear. I, I literally go, holy, my goodness. That's how I make Pictionary. That's how I make Pictionary. I, I do words on cards. If it worked for Trivial Pursuit, for goodness sakes, it'll work for me. And then uh, I panicked. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, it was really overwhelming. I had this sense that I had to do it. I now knew how to do it, but I, I totally overthought everything. Now, first, first, it was the negative self-talk. Rob, you're just a waiter. You can't do it. Uh, you don't know what you're doing. You have no plan. Oh, you're right. I have none of those, Rob. I bought into that. And then it was, no, wait a minute. If I'm going to put the game on the shelf... I need business plans. I need partners. I need capital. I go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I said, forget it. It was, it was, you know, 24 years old. It was too much. And I didn't do anything with it. So I put it away and, and, and I couldn't stop thinking about it, right? It was in my psyche now. And so eventually I just said, look, bro, you don't need a plan. If you do, you're going to drive yourself crazy. What is the first easiest step that I can take? What is, what is a, you know, forget about writing down all the steps necessary to get the game on the shelf, because that also would have been daunting, because it just would have reminded me of all the things I needed. So instead of doing it that way, I went, okay. And it all went back to the words. How do I get the words in the game? Because everybody guesses differently, everybody draws differently, but the words are the driving factor. And as I looked around, and I thought, wait a minute, I can do the word list. Everything I need is right here. I don't have to overthink that either. So I grabbed a pad of paper, a pencil, and an old worn out dictionary that I used actually at college. And I went in the backyard and opened it up. And I wanted to write down all the words I thought would be great to put into Pictionary. You know, we were playing enough. And I open it up and I look and the first word that I see is aardvark. Okay. 
I didn't really know what an aardvark was, to be honest with you, but I knew it was an animal. So I wrote down the word aardvark. And, and Chris and Richard, I got to tell you, I, got, I mean, I can't, I, I, I can't stress this enough. It was the changing of my life because I still didn't have a plan. I still didn't have a game, but I'd written down this one silly word, aardvark. And in that moment, in that one shining moment, I start breaking out in a cold sweat because, because I no longer labeled myself a waiter. I labeled myself a game inventor. And all by writing down one word, aardvark. And that was it. And that was the mindset. And that fast, all my training, all my, my vision, everything that I wanted to do started coming to, to my forefront. And so I thought, okay, I'm now a game inventor. What do I have to do? Oh yeah. I got, I have to take one more small step. I've got to write another word. Uh, uh. That's it. I didn't have to get a business plan. Forget that. That also would have been too much. Right. It's like, okay. I just kept reading the dictionary. Then I wrote down the word abacus. And then I go, oh my goodness, okay, I've taken two steps. And that was how, how it all got started. I just got started without having a plan because if I had waited, I never would have got going. And so, so that's what I talk about. Just take that, find, that first step and I call it find your aardvark. When Trivial Pursuit came out in 1983, it was sort of an anomaly. And the conventional wisdom, always a great thing, in the toy industry at the time was grown-ups don't play games. And so Trivial Pursuit seemed like a little bit of a surprise, uh, disruptive, if you will. When Pictionary came out, it said that there is a trend for adults playing board games. And I know one of the things we did at Pisano and Company was, if you remember, it wasn't the best time economically. We kept saying people are staying at home to, to entertain themselves and they're doing it with board games like Pictionary. Now, we didn't know if that was true or not, but it sounded good. And, <laughs> you know... Classic PR. And we worked, we could get nobody interested in it. And one Sunday, a newspaper, the Tennessean, wrote an article on Pictionary on the front page of their Sunday section. And just the Tennessean. And that was sort of opened the floodgates from a PR standpoint because we'd been laboring and laboring and it suddenly started to, to take off. And we launched the game as new three times over the course we worked on it. Uh, and they bought it every time. As I was preparing for this, I, I looked up Linda Pisano, and, and she's invisible on the Internet. And she was, I think, a very important person at that time. Um, Absolutely. And it's sad that she's so forgotten. Well, Linda, Linda was really the, the pioneer of guerrilla marketing, and she believed uh, inherently that when people got their hands on the game, as you found, Rob, when people got their hands on the game, they wanted it. And at one point, we sat down, I don't know, we were maybe nine months into the project after the Tennessean and it was really starting to roll. We gave away games and we figured at one point that we sold seven for every game we gave away. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, I, I didn't know the math, but. It, yeah, it, it, it was your cheapest, it was your least expensive form of advertising. And it was. It's what we called with the pick packs and giving games away, sampling. Right. That's all it is, right? Just give it away and let people play it because it's going to generate more sales. And it's such an important part of, of gaming, of games right now. And I, I, in my opinion, I don't think enough people are, are doing that. They're looking for games that make a, a splash on YouTube, but really getting people together and play that game where it's different with every person you play it with and you want to do it again and you want to share it. I think that's that's something that's been lost a little bit. 
So my question for you is, is as it became a phenomenon and adult games became a trend, what do you see today as the difference in the in the game market? And it's so much more challenging, so much more crowded. Uh, what do you what would people who want to launch a game today need to know? Yeah, with Kickstarter and all the other avenues, it's it's the barriers to get into the game business are much less. But that's kind of the question you have to ask yourself. Do you want to get into the game business or do you want to produce a game and have fun with your friends and maybe make a couple of bucks? So you have to first just ask why you want to do this. And and it's easier to me to get started. And the the concepts that you can get into and that are so much ver more varied now. As you say, the adult board game market was basically people sitting around a board. But now you've got these panic games. You've got where everybody's working on the same problem. So the way the, the areas to get into are much greater. And so I think that opens it up a lot. And I think people obviously are more in tune with games. In your book and, and in your life, you've talked about what makes a good game. What are those components that a good game needs? Yeah, I, I think one, it has to be fun. Ah! I mean, I mean, that's kind of a weird, a weird concept. But if you're if you want to reach a lot of people, you you write these these specific games where people are going to spend sit around and play for five hours. I mean, those are great games, but you're not going to reach the masses. I mean, remember, I remember. I'm not making this up. Back in the picture days, this woman comes into the showroom. She shows me her game, and I'm I'm kind of looking at it, and it really wasn't fun. I didn't quite get it. And I said, well, um, would you buy this game? She kind of looks at me incredulous. She goes, she goes, well, no, but I'm sure other people would. Oh, my well, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I swear. And I looked at her and go, uh, thanks for coming. So, yeah. So, <laughs> the, game, <laughs> the, game, the game has to be fun. And particularly now, uh, the way it is, as what I referenced in the book, and actually my mentor, my first game mentor, taught me this. And we all have to have mentors. I mean, I can't stress that one enough. But he says, look, the beauty of Pictionary and what you have to do is when somebody opens that game on Christmas morning, they have to be playing it in two minutes. They don't want to be going through rules. They don't want to be trying to figure out how this works. So simplicity is really, really key to people's enjoyment. They can make up their own rules. I mean, everybody made up their own rules to Pictionary anyway. Sure. But we made the rules really, really simple. So it has to be fun. It has to be easy to understand. And for me, I think it has to be inclusive. I think the more people that play and can play at the same time, the better with Trivia Pursuit, Pictionary, Scattergory, Outburst. I mean, the games the games back then, uh, you know, Trivial Pursuit, all those games, they were the more the merrier. Right. The more people that could play, the better, because it wasn't me against you. Well, <laughs> OK, it was. But it was the more people that are having this shared experience. That's why they're still selling. I mean, think about it. If you go to the shelves, there's these games that came out in the 80s, Balderdash, mm -hmm. on and on and on that had this same component. What made them made them great, easy to understand. Anybody could play it at any time. And it was fun. They were fun. Have you uh, invented any other games? Uh, I did a second game in the middle of uh, the tail end of Pictionary back in 97 called Thinkblot. It was based on the Rorschach test. And it was a good game. 
It wasn't a great game. I have to, unfortunately I have to admit that I thought it was a great game. Uh, didn't didn't execute as well as we'd hoped, but it was fun. I mean, I loved what I loved about ThinkPlot was the creative process. I mean, I'm an inventor. I'm a creator. I, I know I I've said numerous times, I'm not a great businessman. I don't want to be. I don't I don't I don't have to exercise that muscle. My skill set. What really inspires me, which really gives me joy, is creating, inventing, going down numerous paths until, oh, this doesn't work. So instead of getting you know, mad or try to force it, I go, okay, let's go a different direction. So I, I love that creative process. So for ThinkBlot, uh, that was really, really fun. And the concept was easy to understand. It was inclusive and everything I, I talked about. Do you still have the original Pictionary game? Uh, so once I came up with the idea, and the quick story to the end of that story is I, I didn't know how to put the game together. There was no manual, no internet. So um, I got two partners that had the same vision as I did, and we borrowed $35,000, and we put together what we could afford, which was 1,000 games. Now, there was nine different parts to the game, the board, the fields, the, mark, the markers, the die, nine different parts. We had them all shipped to my apartment. So my little apartment was ground zero. So all these pieces are piling up everywhere. So finally, just before our launch, June 1st, 1985, we had to put these games together by hand in my apartment to get ready for the launch. And that was crazy times. We had to collate half a million games or sort half a million game cards by hand to get ready for the launch. We had to sharpen pencils. We had to do, I mean, just amazingly fun stuff. But we put together the thousand games and we sold them on that, like I say, June 1st. And of the thousand games that we sold, and out of the approximately 50 million that have been sold since 1985, I think I have about. 20 originals left between my partner and myself. I still have the one that we produced for the millionth game celebration in Seattle that had the gold wrapper on the box. I, you know, I loved that one. That, that was, was great. We, we did a picnic so and a whole, a whole bunch of, of stuff in that. So, Rob Angel, this has been amazing. The book is called Game Changer. It's out June 1. Where can people get it? You can order it, pre-order it on Amazon. Or you can go to uh, robangel.com. You can order it there. And uh, also, if you go to my website, there's going to be, up in the next couple of days, uh, a notice that we're going to have a launch. So we're gonna, the more the merrier, like we said, about Pictionary, same thing. So if you go there, we'll be able to uh, give you information on how to join on the big launch party. It is, it is a unique story of an American success. And Rob Angel, that would be you too. Thank you for joining us. Richard, I love talking to Rob Angel. He's such a great guy. I've known him for so long. We had so much fun on Pictionary. It was really great to revisit that. Now we come to our portion that we call the end cap. And I thought it would be great for us to talk a little bit about games, having just talked about Pictionary. What are you hearing out there about games? I mean, I know that it's been one of the categories that stayed hot during uh, coronavirus as people are shut in. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I've talked to a, a few um, people in, in high-level positions with game companies, and they say their sales are continuing. It hasn't tapered off. Now, having said that, I, I do think that come into the Christmas season, we're, we're going to probably see 
less purchases of games just because people are going to be have quite a library at home by the right. time we get to that point. But one interesting thing I thought, Chris, there's a uh, process on, on the computer you can use called the Ngram, and it allows you to track popularity of a particular word. Mm-hmm. And it tells you anywhere from 1800 to the year 1800, from the year 1800 to the year 2008, I believe, uh, how many, how often that word was used in, in written, in books and in magazines, et cetera. Uh, and uh, what I found was that during the flu uh, epidemic of 1918, 1919, that the number of times that the word games and puzzles was used shot up enormously. Uh, and, and, and so that, to me, it's telling me if they're talking about games that much, it must have been, if they're writing about games that much, people were involved with games. But interesting me, what I like is that after that, the games and puzzles continue to, to be very popular words used in these books, which tells me maybe puzzles and games continue to be very popular after that. So the, the message here could be that puzzles and games may be very, uh, have a very, very good run coming up uh, going forward. Well, I think so. And the, uh, the end of the flu epidemic coincided with the second wave of the Parcheesi craze uh, in, the, in, <laughs> the, in the United States. And then throughout the, the Great Depression, which happened, what, 10 years later, started 10 years later, and World War II, people were at home so that they were playing a lot of games during those times. And those are the years in, that many of the games that we know today started to come along. Candyland, Monopoly, Clue, Sorry, all of those. You know, Chris, what I thought was interesting was uh, I also did an engram on the word construction toys. And prior to 1918, 1919, it wasn't even used. And suddenly, if you look at the graph, it shoots way up and, again, never goes down again. So you can almost see the launch in fascination with construction toys at that time. And I think we've had several several big game crazes over the years, the, the mid-60s, all of those skill and action games from Marvin Glass, Mousetrap, Crazy Clock, Dynamite Shack, all of those died off a little bit in 1983, as we were talking about with Rob. Uh, people believed adults didn't play board games any longer. Well, here comes Trivial Pursuit, followed by Pictionary, followed by right. all the all the other games. And, and in recent years, really sort of driven by the, the resurgence of Pie Face, we've seen a whole new uh, era of skill and action games, or we call them sp- suspense games. Or I think I think Rob called them panic games, which I thought was a great term. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess I would say uh, I'm very bullish on the puzzle and game and construction categories, um, though I think they're going to have a downturn at the end of the year compared to what's going on now. I, I think that the level of interest in these products is going to stay high for some time to come. I agree, especially as adult entertainment. We've seen Exploding Kittens, Cards Against Humanity. One of the things I think we're going to see a big jump in are the escape room home games because people aren't going out to those as much. And all the companies, whether it's Mattel or Spin Master or Yulu or Play Monster that have a game in, in that vein, it's really collaborative but competitive puzzle solving. And I think that we're going to see a lot of that as entertainment, as 
People have watched everything they can on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll keep our eye on the next games. We'll, we'll hope for the next Pictionary. Richard Gottlieb, as always, I love doing this with you, even though we're way far apart. Uh, this is the Playground Podcast. Tune in next time. <laughs>